Welcome to Why Health, a podcast brought to you by the BYU Public Health Department. I'm Dr. Cougar Hall, a professor here at Brigham Young University. Whether you are a student, parent, or BYU fan, this podcast will help you navigate the world of public health. Our podcast strives to help individuals receive accurate information regarding public health. So whether it's global or local, we will discuss how it pertains to you. Just kick back and relax as we talk about why health. Today we will continue with our discussion with Dr. Bickman, a professor and author of Why We Get Sick here at BYU. Let's take a listen. I have very, very strong feelings on vegetarianism and veganism. And so I I know that other people who are advocates of it also have very strong feelings, and so I try to be very diplomatic. But as a scientist, I can leave somewhat diplomacy at the door and just state authoritatively the further a person, the further a human goes from animal foods, the more nutrient deficient they become. It is literally a diet incompatible with human survival. That there may be a short-term benefit simply because they're eating a little better, but the long-term consequences will be catastrophic, including much higher risks of depression and suicidalities, not to mention the cutting back of any lean mass. You, it is just incredibly difficult to keep muscle and bone in while adhering to a diet that eschews animal foods. And so they start to waste away. They, they manifest like a, a sarcopenia, which is this wasting that you typically see with cancer, But none of these are good um, consequences. But I very much appreciate that to the very thoughtful person, it does present an ethical dilemma. But I would also say that while the person is being thoughtful and trying to be humane in in their view, it's also – this is me attempting attempting to be diplomatic in all seriousness – it's also a little naive because it is a reality of this world – that everything that is alive is living at the benefit of something that died. There is, in fact, I think, a beautiful sentiment there of eternal value, but something must have died for anything that is living now, whether it is a plant that is enriched from the soil that is itself enriched by dead bugs or dead animals, um, which is giving now its nutritional potential to the plant, or whether it is the herbivore that is eating the plant that is living off the nutrients from the soil, from all that dead matter, and getting enriched from the literally the power of the sun, or whether it is the other animal that is eating that animal. Um, it, it is naive to think that by avoiding eating animal products, you are reducing suffering. In fact, to cite science, a group of economists in Australia a number of years ago published a fascinating report where they found that large-scale farming actually resulted in significantly more animal death than large-scale ranching. And they concluded that based on when, uh, on this fact that when you go to a plot of land that is naturally just growing shrubs and grass, whatever it would naturally grow, you have to go in and strip that entire area of land, all those acres. You, you kill it, basically, and you, uh, you kill all of the nesting birds, all of the nesting animals, the, the ground squirrels, the rabbits, etc., and, and then you force it to start growing this plant that that soil didn't naturally want to grow, like soybeans or corn, for example. And to maintain that pristine plot of land, you have to continually kill animals 
that would come in and start eating those crops. And so the actual number of animals killed to try to give the vegan their, their soy protein is far more than the guy who just went and ate a steak. Because that one cow that died has so much energetic value to it that it can feed, I mean, it's hundreds of thousands of calories of food that would nourish a human. Literally everything a human needs would be in that cow. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating that at all. But, but the, again, the further we go from that, the more nutrient deficient we become, and I believe the whole paradigm is based on a somewhat naive view. I, I, I hate that that would sound offensive to some, but I do think some people haven't fully considered the consequences of forcing land to grow a plant that it doesn't want to grow. Rather than letting the land grow what it would naturally grow, letting animals come in and eat that, like a ruminant animal like cattle, which they can graze on the most sparse grasslands, and then we humans come in acknowledging our omnivorous nature, and we, sure, we can eat some plants, some, not all. We can't eat the plants that the herbivore is eating. We can't eat grasses, and so we can then also eat the herbivore especially that ruminant animal that is capable of getting nutrition from a grass, which no other animals can do. I love that we're getting into this spiritual realm because yeah. it feels like we're talking about the stewardship that we have over the earth, for mm -hmm. one, mm -hmm. but also over our bodies. But we're coming out of, I hope we're coming out of uh, the last two plus years of a pandemic. And it's been absolutely tragic on just about every level, actually. But when we look at the, at the loss of life, it's difficult to look at those figures. I would have never two and a half years ago said, oh, yeah, we're going to have a pandemic and it's going to kill millions of people. I just thought in a modern world with the science we have, mm -hmm. it's just not, that's, you know, we're not going to relive 1918. Yeah. I, just, I, I could not have foreseen that. I've been, I've been wrong on many, many of my prognostications when it comes to COVID, SARS-CoV-2. Um, what we know now is that uh, there is a tremendous amount of life lost and the vast majority of the death and disability related to SARS-CoV-2. There, there's been uh, not just one or two, but many comorbidities. Mm -hmm. And it appears, when you look at the data right now, that obesity is highly correlated. Number strong, one. Strongly associated with, with the death and disability that related from, from covid and yet, now this is just my limited perspective, but as we're kind of on the back end of this, I'm still not hearing people talk about obesity like you would assume, yeah. like you would assume we're sounding the alarms. Like, okay, we, we had a wake-up call, but now, no, it's not just a wake-up. We, we have got to address this. Yep, yep. So uh, you, you reminded me of something I wanted to say the first time, with this kind of cultural, this environmental aspect of, of obesity. And I had invoked Joseph Smith in this idea of teach correct principles. The tragedy in our world at the moment is we don't teach correct principles. And all the more reason why I'm sympathetic to someone who's struggling with their weight, because I look at them and think, of course you're struggling because you've been, giving, you've been given utter nonsense as your dietary advice. And let me, put a, let me really emphasize that. <clears throat> if I were to invite everyone over to my home, everyone listening come over to my house and we're going to have a buffet and I have the world's most famous chefs coming to prepare the most delicious food you've ever had. You're going to want to eat. You're going to want to try everything. Come as hungry as you can next week. What would you do to make sure you came to my home as hungry as possible? In general, there are two things that people end up, and I, I kind of, I present this sometimes in formal kind of classroom settings. 
they will come to the conclusion that they'll eat a little less in the days before the event, and they will exercise a little harder. And I'd say, yep, perfect. That is the perfect recipe to come to my home as hungry as possible. But can we see the problem? Because that is the two-piece advice strategy that we've been giving people for 50 years, that we've told them for 50 years, you want to control your weight, eat less, exercise more. Well, wait a minute. You guys, we just concluded that that's the perfect recipe for hunger. That is why if we try to base a weight loss strategy on this pure idea of calories in, calories out, you know, this this bizarre application of, of the laws of thermodynamics, which was never intended to be applied to living organisms, we are left with this strategy that is based on hunger, and hunger always wins. And so, sure, if you're eating less and exercising more, you will lose weight. Like the Biggest Loser game show. Everyone knows that Biggest Loser TV show. How many reunion tours have we seen? None, because they gain it all back, often and then some, unfortunately. It's because this strategy doesn't work. Now, I am, my PhD was bioenergetics, so I have, a, I have a unique appreciation for energy use in organisms and calories then as a result. But to me, there are two aspects to weight gain or weight loss, which is, yes, a caloric aspect, which, which is that energy needs to be accounted for. But we could never hope to account for all of it in, in, in a human. We cannot. We cannot account for all of it um, in, in the average free-living individual. It's impossible. But we also have to account for insulin because you cannot have a fat cell grow unless insulin is elevated. That is, speaking of fundamental biological principles, from fruit flies to humans and every animal in between, it is literally and totally impossible for a fat cell to grow unless insulin is above fasting levels. Now, at the same time, you have to have enough energy, calories, to put into those fat cells to help them grow. But even still... We cannot overlook insulin. And my view of it is then, well, what's going to give us the best bang for the buck? This weight loss journey, what should be the first step? The first step in my mind should be control insulin. Don't worry about hunger. If you're hungry, eat. If you're not hungry, don't eat. But then follow those dietary rules. Control carbohydrates, prioritize protein, don't fear fat. And in so doing, you will know that you're addressing the insulin strategy. And I guarantee... There will be weight loss, and it won't be based on hunger. And then when someone has reached a plateau and they've learned to control their diet better, at least in the case of controlling insulin, then they can start to look at adjusting calories a little, maybe incorporating some fasting from time to time. Um, but then you start to address the caloric aspect after you've addressed the insulin aspect. So that is correct principles from the mind of an obesity diabetes scientist who studies it at the cellular level, admittedly. Um, but once the correct principle has been taught, um, now it's up to the individual, this aspect of, of agency. What you just described, which is this dietary approach, which, which, which takes us, it gets us out of that gutter, which is eat less, move more. Yeah. Which, again, on a, on a personal level, I've had multiple trials with that, and I can tell you that that was ineffective, right? Oh, yeah. Hunger so this, always wins. So this idea of, okay... At, the, at this point, where we're at right now in public health with COVID, and there's, there's, so, there's so little being said right now about how do we get ahead of this? Cause, and, and I'm a fan of vaccinations. I'm, I mean, but, yep. but at some, yeah, all the usual stuff. At some yeah. point, do we talk about addressing a societal issue yeah. related to diet and obesity? Yeah. 
Yeah, so, right, thanks so much uh, to let me get it back around to that. Yeah, so we've known from the very, very early stages, and this has only been proven again and again, that obesity is the leading pre-existing condition that will predict uh, the severity of an infection. Like if someone gets infected with COVID-19 and they, it's bad enough they have to go to, the, to, a, to a hospital, uh, the most common reason for this or the most common coincidence is obesity, then diabetes, then hypertension. All of these are metabolic problems, interestingly. But the, the connection to the fat cell, for me as a fat cell scientist who's literally growing fat cells in my lab right now, and we pull fat cells from people's bellies to do experiments on human fat, I'm fascinated by that connection. And it is, in fact, right to the level of the fat cell, where a virus and the audience may know this, but there's a difference between a bacterium and a virus. Bacteria are their own individual self-sustaining cells, and then the cells themselves are proliferating in the human body. A virus is a little particle of, like, DNA or RNA. It's a little piece of a potential for something. It is not an independent cell. It's what we call this little viral particle. And this viral particle will get into the body, and it must infect a cell, it gets into a cell. We talk about bacteria as infecting the body, but viruses infect the cells of the body. So the viral particle will go into a cell and then hijack the nuclear machinery of the cell to start reproducing itself. And thus, the critical thing is that the virus has to get into the cell. And there are these so-called co-receptors. There are these structures on cells that act as doorways for certain viruses to come in. And fat cells have more of these co-receptors than almost any other cell in the body. There are a handful of exceptions, but very rare exceptions. So in other words, the fat cell is among the most welcoming hosts for the COVID viral particle. And thus, it, it's very logical to conclude that, well, the more fat cells we have, the more homes we have for this virus to come invade and to take over and start producing more of itself to go and infect even more fat cells. So when we, put, when we keep that view in mind, that there's a literal role for fat cells in acting as a welcoming host and now factory of reproducing the virus, it does help us point the finger at fat cells. Now, we shouldn't be pointing the finger at the person and shaming them, as you said. I hope I conveyed the need for empathy when I explain the fact that most people have been taught incorrect principles, but it shouldn't, we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that a person's fat mass doesn't matter. It matters massively when it comes to COVID infection severity. Uh, we've known this from the very beginning, and it continues to play out. But acknowledging that, that underlying role for metabolic health in immune health, then let's focus all the more intently on correct principles. That's course where the bigger challenge is because as you've noted you've been learning more about these other ideas and it's still been difficult for you to make adjustments this this plays out across people all around the world because when we start talking about changing food we truly are talking about deep-seated deep-seated habits if not outright addictions that we're that we're dealing with here it's not just as simple as well now you know control your carbs well that's great um, and moreover, especially in the LDS culture, we've really embraced this mantra of um, all things in moderation. Well, try telling that to an addict. It, that, that sentiment is so lovely. It's such a lovely idea. Well, yeah, ice cream is very, very bad for your insulin and your glucose. Absolutely. It, it really is. 
Um, and, and we would tell someone, someone would say a recovering type 2 diabetic who'd reverse their diabetes through diet, they'd say, I don't want any ice cream. You know, I, I just don't want to eat it. And we would say, you know, a lean, healthy guy would say, well, why not? Just eat a little ice cream. It's fine. Just have one scoop. That's the problem. That's like telling the alcoholic, well, here, just have a little glass of wine and then you can stop. No, you're giving them more of what's causing the problem. And so the idea of moderation in all things is a lovely principle. But once again, I think it's a little naive because some people are moderators. Some people truly do have that ability to just enjoy something for a moment and then be done with it. Many people are not, and they are addicts. Whatever the behavior may be, even a little of it goes too far for them. And, and thus, moderation is a lovely principle, but it's only a principle. It's, not, it's never a reality for them. Oh, Ben, thank you. I, I really think you have struck, both, both today in this podcast, but also in the book, I have read books where I felt uh, defeated. I never felt that in your book. I felt empowered. Good. I'm glad I, to hear that. I think both with how you've addressed nutrition and also physical activity in the book, you essentially, now, now, now this is the way I've digested it, start where you're at. Yep. You don't have to do it all. Like when you talked about exercise, you said the exercise that's most important is the one that you're going to do. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I mean, boy, the way that, that I've taught in the past and really laid out, you know, whether it were the dietary guidelines or physical activity guidelines, I'm, I'm certain that I have been less than empowering with my students. I'm certain that they're like, oh, that, that's the bar I have to get over. And really just, just as very defeating. That's not the tone in your book. And I think there is something to be said for, um, as you talk about being taught correct principles, it, it's, it is actually not compassionate to be dishonest. Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel for the physician who needs to address obesity with a patient, but is afraid to do that. Or they're obese themselves. Yeah. I, I, I kind of think, now maybe this is an overstatement, I kind of think that's where healthcare and public health goes to die. When we can't be honest with people because we fear that, oh, now I'm not being compassionate. Well said. Because the most compassionate thing is to be truthful and to be honest and to meet people where they're at. And, and not just to tell them, well, this is what you need to do. Take their hand. Show them how to do that. I, if, if a reader can get to chapter 17 in your book, they'll realize you're taking their hand no, no, and, c- c- and, you're, and you're moving them forward. Yeah. I'm not shaming you. I'm not guilting yep. you. I'm saying this is the science. Yep. Like it or not, it's... it's uh... <laughs> yep. Oh, no, you, now you're getting into another. I, I will mention I have in the past my students, all of whom are future medical practitioners, physicians mostly and nurses. I will tell them, you need to be like Christ who would teach people by saying, come follow me. You don't want to be like Morianton, who in Ether 10, 11 did justice unto the people, but not unto himself. It's this idea of, well, I'm going to tell you to, you know, eat less sugar to control your diabetes, and then I'm going to go binge on it myself, you know, where, where this, it's, it is that idea of that, that Christ-like teaching, which is, as you said, take them by the hand and just say to them, come follow me. I'm going to show you how to do this because I know how it's done, and I know how hard it is. That's the wonder of the atonement. We have someone who knows how hard it can be, and who has done it, and thus can say to us, "I can show you how to get how to walk this path." Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. it. I love it. Well, I will put a link to your book 
I'll also, I'm, I'm sure you have a pretty active Twitter handle and Instagram and all the, all those ways that people can interact with you, Ben. Yep. And I will probably uh, offer you large sums of money to come on and we'll do this again. We'll do a part yeah. B. Uh, you, we could talk all day. Uh, really, really to. appreciate it. On the way out the door, can I ask, what is Dr. Benjamin Bickman reading right now? What do you, what's, what's, mm-hmm. what's keeping you engaged and, and, yeah. and, and focused on your own learning and development right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a fun question. But what I've been reading is a book by Cleon Skousen, who's well-known in, in gospel circles. He wrote a book called um, Israel Rendezvous with Destiny or something like that. And it's all about, it's mostly about the Six-Day War in the late 1960s. And then it is the role of Israel or, or the, the prophecies surrounding its its future and its role in, in the future. And I am just loving every minute of it. I've, I feel such a kinship with my Jewish ancestry, partly because I bear the name. Bikman is my Jewish name. But I also learned Russian on my mission largely because of my great-grandpa's writing in Russian. And I was so enamored and enchanted by the Russian language. And the fact that my Jewish cousins in Israel only speak Hebrew and Russian and I can communicate with them because I speak fluent Russian too. It, it's really um, fostered this kinship with that side of my family and wanting to learn more history about Israel as a country. So anyway, Rendezvous with Destiny, Cleon Skousen, and I'm enjoying every minute of it. Ah, Ben, amazing. Well, I've enjoyed every minute of this. Mom, Thank pleasure. you again, my brother. All the best. We'll yep. talk to you soon, My I hope. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Catch us on our next episode, and don't forget to subscribe to future Why Health episodes.